Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis, aka crumbly joints. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week we have the privilege of discussing, does mood and coping affect my pain? Historically, most people believed in a biomedical approach to pain but there's an increasing recognition of the importance of psychological factors into a person's pain experience. Emotional, behavioral, and social variables can contribute to a person's pain. But how much do they contribute, and how might one recognize that they are contributing? And what can someone do about them if they are present? The purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to provide an overview of this complex and important area, and what benefits can be gained for someone with osteoarthritis through recognition and treatment. And we're joined by none other than Frank Keefe. And Professor Keefe is Professor of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University Medical Center, and a member of the Cancer Prevention, Detection and Control Program of the Duke Comprehensive Cancer Center. He's a director of the Duke Pain Prevention and Treatment Research Program, who has an active clinical research program concerned with behavioral assessment and treatment of patients having acute and persistent pain. Frank has developed and refined a number of treatment protocols for persistent pain conditions, including spouse and partner-assisted pain coping skills training interventions. He's conducted a number of clinical trials, testing the efficacy of these and other behavioral interventions, including exercise, yoga, mindfulness-based interventions, forgiveness, loving-kindness meditation, and emotional disclosure. He's published over 400 papers as well as 60 book chapters, and he currently serves as the editor-in-chief of the journal Pain. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to have you along, and real privilege to talk to you about a topic that 
you're really much a, a leader in the field and have led a lot of the, the important studies and the important trials that have shed light on, on this area. But before we get into the, the topic of the day, I think it's really helpful just to get to know you a little bit better. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? That's a tough question. I'd say uh, committed to reducing pain-related suffering. Fantastic. Um, and from a professional standpoint, I know you have a lot of outside interests, but when you're at work, what is it that you're typically doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, currently right now, um, I, I put it primarily in two categories. One, it's called research. I do an awful lot of editing, uh, both for the journal I edit, but also uh, editing uh, work by colleagues, papers that they've written. Um, I do a lot of teaching, and that mainly takes the form of mentoring young investigators who are getting into this area. Very exciting activity. I was a clinician for over 30 years and spent most of my time doing that, but I stopped my clinical practice about two years ago. Brilliant. And we were just talking before we got on the show about some of your outside interests, but I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on your non-professional hobby type interests for the listeners. Yes. Um, I love two things. One is playing jazz and I play the upright bay, bass and I'm in two different jazz groups. And I also really enjoy taking long cycle trips, cycling very long distances, preferably over mountains and hills and just being out there in the kind of beautiful outdoor scenery. So, sounds wonderful. And hopefully we can uh, get more into talking about that a little bit later on during the show, but I'd be really interested in how you maintain uh, balance, particularly given all of the other professional roles that you carry out. I'd really appreciate your insights there. The topic of the day is a really important one and something that I know that affects a lot of people out there who have osteoarthritis, and that's really trying to unpack the biopsychosocial components that contribute to pain. What are the important psychosocial contributors to pain in osteoarthritis? Yeah, I've given this question a lot of thought over my career. And I more and more have come to the point that um, I think the most important contributor are the efforts that individuals make to adjust and cope with and reduce their pain. When you have pain, you do make those efforts. There are things that you do to try to change your life to deal with the pain. And when the pain goes on, particularly say in osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, there are so many different opportunities for learning. And we can think of people actually developing a kind of menu of different strategies they use to cope with pain. And one of the things I found um, over time is there's an amazing array of strategies and they differ in terms of how well they work for people. Some of the things that people do, they clearly recognize, they, they work for them. And these often involve active strategies to coping, you know, remaining engaged with what's important in your life despite pain acknowledging some of the, the challenges of pain and really taking them on. I mean, partly what we want to talk about today are emotional challenges, you know, being aware of and understanding your emotions, accepting emotions, learning when you're having pain to control impulses, don't overreact when you're feeling emotional, um, ability to deal with your emotions so you can pursue the goals when you are upset, and developing ways of calming yourself. Those are just some of the challenges that people take on when they have a pain condition. 
and they become much more challenging when that pain goes on. And another uh, thing that we find in terms of people who are using these active approaches, they often learn to be flexible. So they have a menu and they can mix and match those strategies. So some of these things work, but other things don't work so well. So when people have pain, if it is severe and it persists, they, some people find themselves isolating themselves, spending their time lying down, avoiding activities. They find they get overly focused on the worst case outcomes that might occur. Their mood gets to be um, really challenging. They may become depressed, feel guilty, ashamed, or whatever. Uh, sometimes people turn to things like bad habits, smoking more or or eating more or uh, taking drugs or, or whatever that, that are not prescribed for them. And these things work as strategies in the immediate run, but in the long run, they actually work against, for pe- against people. Yeah, no, what, I'm, what I might do is just try and unpack some of that really complex yeah. area a little bit further. But you've spoken about coping and adaptive strategies and learning and, uh, and adjusting according to what, uh, what you're faced. How do you recognize within yourself or working with other people whether some of these maladaptive problems may be present and or the mood is problematic? How do you recognize that? Yeah, I think that uh, one thing that we've learned through research and a lot of clinical observation is these things can vary enormously over time and from day to day. And for that reason, uh, both in research and many people in clinical practice now are having people keep diary records and looking at patterns over time. So someone might be making an entry uh, each day, not simply rating their pain, but looking at some of these uh, ways that they are coping with pain and looking at important outcomes from them for them. Did they go to work that day? Do they follow through with some of their family responsibilities, tracking their mood and so on? And what we find uh, in people doing this, they really begin to become much more aware of patterns that are there and see relationships between pain and mood, pain and and, uh, their social uh, life, pain and some of their uh, biological uh, responses in ways that help them Uh, intervene. Once you start to see patterns, it's much easier to intervene and make changes. And is that, is that diary that you're talking about there, Frank, is that um, narrative? Is that a, is that a visual analog scale? What, what, what is that that you're encouraging people to do? It can be done in many different ways. I think a narrative diary, there's research showing that that can be very helpful. It could be uh, as simple as making entries on a daily calendar in terms of what your pain was, what your mood was, what your activity was, and how you cope that day. But people sometimes develop beliefs or impressions of the problems they're having and how they're related that often vary from what actually happens. And I can't tell you how many people have thought, boy, this is a really problem area, and they've done a diary and they've actually learned, for example, I've worked with people around sleep problems. You know, I'm actually getting more sleep than I thought. My sleep is better than I thought. Yeah, there are some days that aren't, that I don't do well, but overall I'm actually doing a lot better than I thought. So keeping some type of record, either journaling or 
a simple uh, daily diary recording, it doesn't have to be anything fancy, um, really can help with the first step to changing coping, and that is understanding how you are coping. And, and from a mood perspective, whether it be the diary or just the recognition of, uh, of what it is that you're feeling, are there elements of mood that you get people to pay attention to? Uh, you know, whether, whether it be stress, uh, depression, the impacts of that on sleep, interactions with family members, are, are, there, are there elements particularly that you get people to focus on? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, we've done a lot of research in this area looking at psychological factors that are influenced by pain and in turn that influence pain. One of the things that's actually pretty interesting is that many of the emotions that we think about tend to co-occur in people. Um, so sometimes just measuring something like stress or overall distress, emotional distress is, is sufficient. Um, and it picks up on increases in depression, anger, guilt, shame, anxiety. Many, many people with persistent pain, particularly with arthritis, don't meet formal criteria for a mood diagnosis, say, of depression or anxiety. But they do have real variations from day to day in the level of emotional distress related to their pain. So often just a simple zero to 100 uh, subjective rating of uh, your level of emotional distress will be sufficient uh, for tracking these changes uh, day to day. And in people where this is present, mechanistically, how does that influence their pain experience? That's a, another really good question. There are these really interesting interplays between elements of the biological, biopsychosocial model and pain. And it's very important to point out, particularly with psychological factors, that the literature seems to suggest it's more that as pain goes on, it persists and it's severe and so on. It creates these psychological responses, which then in turn influence the pain that we don't see as strong evidence that say, if you're somebody that tends to be more depressive or anxious before you developed arthritis, that your pain's necessarily gonna be a lot worse. So much of um, what we're talking about with these mood responses are just that, responses to persistent pain and variations in pain. But um, I think that when pain persists and coping efforts are engaged, they can influence pain through a number of mechanisms. So uh, clearly, we have biological mechanisms. Pain is stressful. If you, if you look at some of the early studies of stress, they use pain as the major stimulus to induce stress responses. And we know those stress responses can influence things like underlying disease activity, the impact of disease activity, so on. We know that when pain persists, uh, people have sleep disruptions that uh, are important in and of themselves, but clearly can influence pain. When pain persists, it influences our physical conditioning. People often start, stop doing things and they become physically deconditioned. When they try to do activities, it's much harder for them. They're more intense, they're more fatigued, and so on. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, ways of adjusting like smoking more, eating more, particularly high fat foods, uh, high sugar foods, all these things can influence pain. Interestingly, 
on a short-term basis, on a long-term basis, all of them can make pain worse. So I think some of these coping efforts work through biological mechanisms. They also work through social mechanisms. So they influence how much you engage with work, how you are able to carry out your family responses. And one of the really unfortunate things that happens when people have pain for a long time they stop actually pursuing those valued activities that really give their life meaning. So they tend to spend a lot of time in the obligatory things, the things that have to be done that day. But the things that really are important to them, often they give up. So there's a variety of mechanisms. If you looked at the pure psychological mechanisms that probably have the strongest support, they, they, probably the most important is, is what we might call a sense of control. And this, you could think of this as a continuum. So at one end of the continuum are people, despite pain, and it might be there every day, really have a sense of what we call self-efficacy. That is confidence. You know, I have the ability to deal with this. There are things I can do. It doesn't make the pain go away, but there are things I can do to control this and the effect it has on my life. So there are people that are high on that, on that end of the continuum. And then uh, the other end of the continuum is feeling like, you know, I don't have any control and engaging in worst case thinking, you know, whatever's gonna happen today, it's just not gonna work out. And this has sometimes been called pain catastrophizing, but it really, I think, represents what we might think of as worst case thinking. You get into this mindset where you ruminate about the pain and all you can imagine is the worst case. So the sense of control, and people can vary on a given day and in a given pain episode, kind of where they are with this, is very important. And there's some emerging research, brain imaging work, which shows that people who have much higher self-efficacy are actually better to, able to engage pain control mechanisms in the brain and even in the spinal cord that serve to dampen pain. And alternatively, there's also work showing that people that engage in this form of worst case thinking aren't as able to engage these pain control mechanisms in the central nervous system. So Frank, that's really, really important and I hope very valuable to our listeners, but let's, let's um, work through some of those issues and try to make them so that they're practicable for the people who are listening. For a person who maybe recognizes that the their mood, uh, their social participation, their impact on family members, their catastrophizing or challenges with coping may be present. What do they do about that? How do they fix that? You know, is that, is that an interaction with a healthcare professional? Is that an interaction with online resources? Once they recognize that there is a problem that's influencing their pain experience, how do they go about fixing each of those potential problems? Yeah. Well, what we're really talking about here is behavior change, and that requires some effort. So I think there isn't like a magic bullet out there. <laughs> I think sometimes we'll, people will pick up like a, a relaxation um, app on their phone, and they'll use it once or twice and say, well, it helped a little, it didn't really do that much, or you know, I, my life is too busy, I can't do it, or a meditation app, things like that. In order to really change how you're coping, you're talking about changing your behavior. And just like, uh, you know, learning a lifestyle weight management or starting a consistent exercise program, it, it takes some time and effort. And 
depending on where you are in dealing with your pain, you may be at the point you're willing to engage in that time and, and effort. And other times, maybe the pain's not so bad, or you know, you you just don't feel you can commit to it. So I think that readiness to change is important, and the understanding that it is it is a task. It, it involves a series of steps, and you need to make a commitment to it, and should give it a good period of time, maybe four to six weeks before you make judgments about it. But given that, um, there are things that you can do on your own, and these have been kind of framed under self-management, and there are books available on self-management of pain out there. There are things on the web. That is there, is there any particularly that you'd like to highlight that may be very valuable? Um, well, we have a resource uh, that we've put together based on our research, and it's available in Australia through the University of Melbourne. And if your listeners want to look uh, for a website, it, uh, we have a online pain coping skills training program called Pain Trainer, P-A-I-N Trainer. And if you simply plug that into your search engine, you'll find the website, which is www.paintrainer.org. And it will walk you through the process of coping with your pain. And um, there's also a number of books that Kate Lorig, L-O-R-I-G, has written about self-management of pain, arthritis pain in particular, but also of uh, chronic health conditions that I can recommend very highly. And those are available through uh, wherever you get your books online. Um, and they're very practical. And I'm actually working with her on an update right now of the one for people with pain. So there are resources out there. There are classes uh, run in the com many communities based on the self-management work by Kate Lorig and so on. Yeah, and many, of, these... and many of the Arthritis um, Australia and state-affiliate organizations and those run by the Arthritis Foundation in the US, their education programs are very much, I think, centered around Kate Lorig's principles. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think if you look at, and there, there are various ways to, to, to enhance your coping, but I think the common elements are, are essentially three. And you could see these if you went to, um, you know, I, I want to systematically learn how to meditate, or I want to learn um, how to use guided imagery or, or any of these things. You'll find three key elements, and these are based on principles and theories of behavior change. But the first is an educational component. That people come in, particularly with pain, with a very set idea of what pain is and how it should be managed. So pain is a, it's a biomedical problem. I need to go to the doctor to figure out what's wrong. And it gets managed either with medicine or surgery. And clearly that's an important component. But you need to learn more about our current understandings of pain and so education about the fact that now doctors recognize pain is a complex and dynamic experience. And it's influenced by our mood, it's influenced by our behavior, it's influenced by our thoughts, our feelings, and so on. And there's a biological basis for how these things actually influence the pain. There are brain mechanisms that help us understand. It helps this, this way of thinking about pain helps us understand why certain pain control techniques work better than others. And it also, when you begin to think about pain, this, your pain in this different way, 
it opens you up to the idea that there are other things that you can do to manage pain other than simply taking medicines or having a surgery. And that shift in, in perspective, I think is very, very important. And this work done by um, Lorimer Mosley in Australia, looking just simply at the impact of this educational rationale, kind of learning about how the brain is involved in, 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 our, in the pain experience, that simply presenting that information and understanding it can alter the way we perceive pain. It's actually very fascinating. And not only that, it alters our willingness to engage in learning, say, new coping skills and enhances our motivation to do that, which is important because, as I already mentioned, this is behavior change. It's not necessarily easy. So this first step of education is extremely important, and it's one that many people skip. You know, when they try to pick up an app or they, you know, they, they read an article um, in, in a magazine, you know, oh, here's some simple thing you can do for pain. If you don't put this in a kind of framework, a, a way of rethinking pain, the likelihood you're going to keep up with it is, is much lower. So that's the first component. The second, and that's done, you know, that could be done in meditation, it could be done in, um, in, in other types of interventions for pain as well. The second component you'll see across many of these programs is actually formal training and skills. So people, um, and this is very experiential, so rather than lecturing to someone, this is what you should do at home, uh, you would actually uh, practice this skill in real time. So we do this online with our program, when we work with patients face-to-face -face or over the phone, we do this, we say, let me show you how it's done. We'll take a few minutes, I'll show you. Now you do it, and I'll watch you do it. And now let's kind of go on over how that went. What was that like? What did you notice? Are there some areas we can problem solve? So approaching this as a skill, and like any skill, you know, you can imagine learning to serve a tennis ball or riding a bike, um, having someone guide you through it, you're actually practicing it, learning from the successes and the, and the problems that you have with it is absolutely essential. So that's the second step. And the third step you can kind of think of as the application phase. So once you've mastered the skill, you've practiced enough that you can do, do it. So you, let's say you've ridden the bike around your, your driveway enough that you know you're not gonna fall over. Then how do I apply this? How do I take that skill, go out on the road with it, you know, go, uh, climb some mountains with your bike, that sort of thing. So this last part is also very important. People are encouraged, and again, you see this in meditation, you see it in all these different skills trainings. People are encouraged to take what they learn in, in the session or online and actually go out and apply this in real life situations. And often this is done in a graded fashion. You start applying it in the easier situations. So maybe you graduate from the driveway to a big parking lot at night that's empty, something like that, if we're thinking about the bike, but applying it initially in earlier situations and then progressively more difficult situations and learning how to problem solve around um, the situations that come up. Now, in some cases, it's very important to involve partners in this process, and we are doing a lot of research on this in people with very severe pain conditions, uh, advanced disease, so we're doing a lot of work in palliative care settings now where partners are already involved. They might be delivering medications, they might be physically helping the patient um, do daily tasks, things like this. 
And uh, we are now systematically involving partners as well as patients in this training and drawing on the resources of that couple, the dyad. And it might be, the partner might be a spouse, it might be an older daughter, it might be a neighbor, uh, various individuals who spend some time with the patient. And we find when partners uh, learn the same skills um, and coach and encourage the patient to use them, not only does the patient do better, but the partner also perceives benefits for themselves in terms of lowering their stress and enhancing their own confidence that they can help the patient manage their pain. It's really, really helpful practical advice, Frank, and I hope a lot of the people out there take up words of wisdom and, uh, and do something about it. Now, for someone out there who's listening to you and contemplating doing something about this, what evidence is there that this makes a difference and what's the magnitude of that benefit that they're likely to attain? And that can be a number of different outcomes, but I'm happy for you to elaborate on that. Sure. Um, well, there are systematic reviews and meta-analyses. I'm not sure how much your readership has heard about those, but they are available. Uh, there are guidelines for arthritis um, that different countries and different associations have put out. And they have either conducted their own reviews or drawn on these systematic reviews of these interventions, these different behavioral interventions for pain. So um, there's considerable evidence that the interventions work. There's also considerable evidence from a whole variety of studies that these biological, psychological, and social factors can influence pain. There are observational studies of that. So the studies, the, the research is out there. The magnitude of effect is actually an interesting question because in the randomized clinical trials, typically um, what's done is um, one group is assigned to a usual care condition, standard medical care, where they're getting state-of-the-art, for example, uh, drugs for osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, as well as physical therapy, other interventions that are offered through their center. The other group gets those same interventions, but on top of that, they get the training that we're discussing. And what's interesting is that adding the training that we're discussing in, the behavioral intervention, has routinely provided significant, significantly better outcomes than the usual care or standard medical care sorts of things. So it seems to be a, an effect that is uh, statistically and clinically significant above and beyond what you would get from your medical management for your condition. Yeah, and I think it's important to elaborate, and I'm very happy for you to do this, that that benefit is not just in their psychological uh, well-being, it's also in their experience of pain and their ability to function and participate in other things as well. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And uh, I will contrast that observation with the uh, reviews and evidence for medicines for osteoarthritis. So um, in other forms of arthritis. So they're usually the primary outcome is pain. And the reviews do show that these drugs will influence, will significantly decrease pain. Interestingly, they don't often have significant effects on other outcomes. The most consistent effect is on pain. Also, most of those studies of drugs are relatively short term. Some, for example, are 12 weeks, 16 weeks, compared to some of the behavioral interventions. 
So if you look at the reviews of behavioral treatments, you find that yes, it does have a significant effect on pain. That's usually the primary outcome. But it also almost always shows effects on psychosocial outcomes. So things like mood, activity level, and um, self-efficacy coping kinds of outcomes. And the other thing is that these effects are often persist over time, uh, much longer. So uh, many of the trials have outcomes going six months, 12 months, that sort of thing, and showing maintenance of effects. So I think that putting this into the larger context, there is uh, some evidence that these techniques can help over and above what you might see with medicine alone. And uh, people are willing to uh, maintain and work with these techniques over time and actually can show uh, a maintenance of their improvements and sometimes even further improvement at long-term outcome. This, this one is a little bit more anecdotal, but I really appreciate your perspective on this. But let's, let's take the standard medical model, the traditional medical model, one where being uh, pain is treated with a drug. Um, and historically, I don't think recognition of the important contribution of psychosocial factors has, has played a, a big role. Um, and for many people out there in the community, they've been this reluctant albeit it's getting better, reluctant to admit that some of these uh, psychosocial elements may be a problem for them. And when you bring them in to the clinic and you're trying to engage them in uh, exercise programs, trying to engage them in improving their diet, um, but all the same time they're fighting with themselves over elements that manifest as, as you described, you know, catastrophizing problems, coping uh, challenges with their knowledge about the disease and, and self-efficacy. How well do you think people are able to engage in behavioral changes other than the psychosocial, particularly as it relates to exercise, uh, diet, um, and interaction with society, if they don't admit uh, that there is another important contribution playing a role here? And how challenging would that become? I think you're really putting your finger on the pulse of kind of the the heart of the problem here. And I, and I hear this, I, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician and, and work with patients with chronic pain every day for 30 years of my life and, you know, work with, with doctors and therapists and others seeing them. And I think the heart of the problem is that people come in with one way of thinking about their pain. It's kind of you know, old notion that the pain is directly proportioned to tissue damage. All we have to do is get rid of the disease and the pain will go away. And, you know, that it's just these other factors really don't play a role. And doing something like exercise invo involves acknowledging, yeah, what I do physically is really important, you know, and, and these other things. And I think this willingness to engage with these other treatments even the acceptance of the idea that they might help is something that is not cast in stone. People don't come in and they're, you know, yes or no. I think it's a process. And what I've seen and I've heard from many uh, clinicians that as they work with the patient, for example, a physical therapist works with a patient, an occupational therapist works with a patient, a doctor works with their patient, and maybe they're encouraging them to stop smoking or you know, change their diet, the patient's belief that, oh, this, uh, this isn't really important, you know, it, it's really, the, this, you know, why don't you just get rid of my disease? 
they begin to start, as they work with it and take these steps, they begin to see, hey, wait, maybe this might be helpful. It's not helpful all the time, and I'm noticing some changes here. And those beliefs that are often seen in the initial encounter with a patient, boy, they're so fixed, you know, they're not gonna change. People, the patients themselves and the healthcare professionals working begin to see, hey, you know, this is malleable. This is not set in stone. Um, people can change in this regard. So a lot of our work, when we work with people that are you know, having problems, advanced disease, a lot of pain, is right around this issue. How do we get them to think about their pain in a different way? What are, what are strategies? What are stories that we can tell? What are diagrams that we can use? What are possible links to their own experience that they can begin to reflect on that may at least open them up to the possibility of trying some of these things. Um, and once we find they start to do that, things begin to snowball and, and change. Um, but we have put a lot of work into that um, process. And um, I think it's the biggest challenge. And, and I think it's multiply determined um, you know, why people have those attitudes. And I think it's part of the struggle of dealing with a, a chronic condition. And um, it, it's tough. But I think good clinicians find ways to help people with that. I think over time, sometimes patients become much more open to the possibility that these other treatments might make a difference. And that's a wonderful thing to see. Yeah, really, really sagely advice. And as you say, I think recognition and acceptance is really a key principle to begin with in, in the first instance. And I, I think just to emphasize that point and the the challenges of just running with the traditional medical model is that, you know, there are a number of people who look at the tissue damage, say, I'm going to get my joint replaced, but don't recognize the concomitant Depression and sensitization that may be present and have a poor outcome as a consequence of the fact that they haven't dealt with uh, dealt with some of the underlying problems. Yeah, but, um, I can tell you a story. I can tell you a story that really captures this. Uh, there was a patient who had um, very severe disease. He had a severe nerve injury. He was he was uh, confined to a wheelchair, and he was told to come to see me. And we talked and chatted, and I went through his life, and I and pointed some things that might be helpful for him. And he said, you know what, I appreciate it, but you know, none of this is really gonna help me. I, I just have no interest in this and I, I just don't think it's gonna work. And I said, well, it does take effort and you know, I'm really glad you told me that. And you know, maybe there'll be some point down the road where this might be helpful, but you know, I, I respect your decision. I wrote a note to his doctor. Next week I came in and there he was in my waiting room, this wheelchair. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, my doctor told me I needed to come back. And I said, well, you know, I've got 45 minutes. Why don't you come in and we'll chat for a bit? So he was there and, you know, we, we reviewed. Yeah, he said, you didn't want to come. And I said, you know, if you're here, if you want to try something, I can try something with you and we'll see how it goes. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll try anything once. So we went through a little relaxation training. And he had tremendous relief from his pain. <laughs> Uh, and he said, this is really interesting. And I, you know, I gave him uh, some instructions to work with at home and he got a lot of relief from this. But I think in that situation that sometimes people are very resistant and you need to kind of allow them to be with that. And they may surprise themselves later, you know, coming back or just opening for even a few minutes to 
trying some of this, they, they may find, gee, I'm in a different place now and I can really benefit from this. Respecting, I think, the limits and boundaries can be a really good thing. Yeah, it's a great story and hopefully, again, very helpful for the people who are listening. Now, we've touched upon some of them, but are there any other patient-friendly resources or links that you might like to share with listeners or anything that I forgot to ask that I should have? Um, I think those are the major ones that I'd bring up. I think the reason that I mention particularly the work by uh, Kate Lorig is that it actually is based on, on some research. And the same with our own program. It's based on our many years of research that uh, Michael Nicholas has a book on, on a self-management that also is evidence-based. And he's in Australia, he's at the University of Sydney, New South Wales. And you know what I would recommend to your readers is, is to try to, if you're looking for resources, um, give much more credence to those that actually are based on research and not something that is just um, thrown together by someone that's trying to help but necessarily hasn't done the research. That's really, really helpful. And again, just to emphasize a couple of the things that Frank spoke about. So Kim Bennell at the University of Melbourne has done a lot of work with Frank and um, put together the pain trainer program. And obviously, Laura Mosley from South Australia also has a lot of really good, helpful consumer education resources. Now, we're going to move on and hopefully get a few more insights about you, but this doesn't necessarily need to be COVID related, but what's the biggest challenge you have with your specific role right now and how are you going to overcome that? The biggest challenge right now, we have gotten, or I am on, I'm not the principal investigator, but I'm on five grants right now that are looking at the effects of non-drug interventions to deal with uh, people with pain who are on opioids. And in this country, the opioid crisis is incredibly, has had an incredible impact and extremely challenging to deal with. And um, all these studies are starting right now. They're all in the startup phase <laughs> during this pandemic. So um, thankfully, a lot of what we have done can be done remotely. Our interventions are delivered over Zoom, such as this over phone or uh, many of the studies are actually looking at the pain trainer online program that I mentioned. So it's people on opioids in a variety of contexts. One study is uh, uh, patients with osteoarthritis who are taking opioids. Another one is patients on dialysis who are having pain um, who are taking opioids. So it's various types of studies. Um, but it's, it's a huge challenge, probably bigger than any challenge that any of us working in this area have faced. Yeah. Um, yeah. How to engage and, people in interventions to help them manage pain without using opioids or reducing their opioid intake. Yeah, no, it's a really, really important societal issue and obviously for the individuals affected a massive problem as well. And we, we covered that in a, um, in a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Jeff Katz um, talking oh, just about opioids uh, and osteoarthritis. Now, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, uh, what would you do? I would love to see more early intervention with the kind of approaches that, that we've been talking about. And I think it's beginning to filter into primary uh, medical prayer, uh, care. I think there's more and more emphasis on self-management, you know, healthy behaviors, healthy lifestyle, getting those things uh, early. 
And I, I am really hoping down the line we will see self-care for pain for people that are diagnosed with chronic conditions more and more emphasized as part of the very early tools that uh, are offered right after diagnosis. I think that could have a huge impact in reducing the amount of suffering and pain that people have with these diseases. Yeah, no, really, really important. Now, a little segue, but trying to get to know a little bit more about what makes you tick, but why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Yeah, well, very early in my career, I had a pain problem of my own um, during a move to actually this area to Duke. Um, I herniated a disc. I had a very large herniation, had very severe pain, had only been at work a very short period of time before this happened. And uh, just really a lot of the things that I'm talking about over the next year or so, I experienced. I ended up having, having, having to have surgery. I waited a very long time to do it. They have it, which we now know is not the best approach if you have this type of acute herniation. So I learned a lot, and I think that motivated me to help others. And clearly the people that I've ended up working with were much more effective than I was, but I think it gave me some insight and helped me value that a focus on pain per se is, is a major contribution and, and something I actually have dedicated my life to. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, those personal insights that come from being a patient are, are incredibly revealing, and I'm not necessarily suggesting all doctors or health professionals should go through experiences like that, but I think you, uh, you ultimately do gain hopefully a lot from uh, that experience, despite how negative it may be at the time. But how do you continue to learn, given particularly how busy you are, in order to stay on top of things in your role? Well, I spend so much of my time doing two things that are just packed with learning. So one is I edit an international journal that covers not only applied research, such as what we talked about today, but basic research in pain. And it pulls me into contact with people all over the world who are doing cutting edge work. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm always learning something. And the other thing I do is I work with younger investigators, younger and mid-career investigators who are designing usually novel interventions to work with people to change some of the factors that we've talked about. And it's just so exciting to see the areas that they're getting into, uh, extending these approaches to all kinds of different patients, older patients, children, different types of pain conditions, acute chronic pain. It's just a, it's a wealth of learning for me and I absolutely enjoy it. Brilliant, uh, really helpful advice, including for myself. But now if you could have a billboard with anything on us, what would it be and why? I think more and more I've come to this view uh, that I probably should write this and put it on my computer, but I would put on it, engage with this moment, that I think when we have pain, when we have chronic conditions, so much of the time we're thinking about the past, we're thinking about the future, but really when you think about it, we only have this moment right now. We're never going to have this very second, this very moment again, and that's what we really have when, when you think about what can we do, and I think that um, many of these interventions and many of the concepts that I've talked about really involve what's happening in the moment and by changing and working with that moment and engaging it and observing how we're reacting, I think we really set us up, 
uh, for really a, a life that is full of meaning. Really, really helpful. If there are any <laughs> words of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to leave in parting for people with osteoarthritis? Yeah, I would say seek to understand yourself. Take advantage of the learning opportunities that come as you try to deal with your disease and try to grow from those. See what you can learn, uh, both the positives and maybe some of the, the negatives that you might view as learning opportunities. Frank, that was incredibly helpful. Great conversation. Lovely to spend some time with you and learned a lot. Um, and I'm hoping the listeners uh, gain a lot from that as well. So thank you. Thank you, David. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong. Music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.